Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good afternoon, Imago Day. It's like I'm collecting cups up here. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Uh, we are wrapping up our series on being faithful in exile. And what exile is, uh, as a way of reminder, is essentially for the people of God, for Israel, in the book of Daniel, they have been carried off into a new land, a different land, Babylon. And part of that is the loss of these structures and institutions that validated their faith. The temple was a big piece of that. Uh, for them, much of their worship revolved around their temple. That's been destroyed. Uh, the, the things of the temple have been carried off. And the other institution was the state, the fact that Israel was a nation. Now they've been conquered. And as they find themselves in this sort of new world, uh, they have to wrestle with what does it mean to be faithful to God in the midst of this new space. Uh, it, it, it's not very different than the church has always had to wrestle with, as the church has always throughout history found itself in different cultures, in different spaces, having to figure out how do we discern and work through what it means to be the people of God in our time and our space. And as culture continually shifts, that's something that we uh, also have to wrestle with. There's kind of these two polar extremes whenever that tension resides for the church. One is that we kind of swing way to the sort of right of culture. We um, band together to fight culture, to protect God, to, to, to sort of remove ourselves from culture and go to war. The other side is to swing way into culture and just sort of assimilate into its values and its teaching and, and morph the scriptures and morph our faith into that. Neither one of those has much of a life-giving or prophetic edge to it. But Daniel sort of shows us how to walk in this in-between space, to be in the world and not of it, to be faithful to God and yet engaged with the world that he's been placed in. And today, we come to Daniel chapter four. So if you have a Bible and you turn there, and essentially this is written, Daniel four is written by the king of Babylon. Uh, it's an edict that he wrote to essentially describe how God had transformed his life. Daniel and his friends never in a million years would have imagined that part of the purpose of exile was so that they could bear witness to God to the king and that the king would essentially become a missionary who uh, calls the whole world to worship Yahweh or the God of Israel. But that's what happens. And so what I want us to look at today essentially is what is the role of hope when God confrontationally transforms people, taking them from arrogant, sort of prideful people to become worshipers of God. And we're gonna look at this passage as sort of a three-act play. 
In other words, as Nebuchadnezzar tells his story, he breaks it up into these uh, three pieces. The first is a dream, the second is the fulfillment of that dream, and the third is the result of the dream. Well, it starts off with a dream where he is very disturbed. He has a dream of a tree that is just massive and produces fruit, and all of kind of the creatures of the earth take refuge in its shade. And a messenger from heaven comes and announces that the tree is to be cut down. The tree is cut down and everything scatters, but the stump remains and the roots remain and the stump is bound by iron and um, bronze. And as Nebuchadnezzar wakes from this dream, he becomes extremely kind of paranoid to its meaning. And so he calls all of his magicians and sorcerers and whoever interprets that sort of thing, and then he calls Daniel. And Daniel goes away sort of distraught because if you're in this place at this time to be before the king, there's a little bit of fear. But he finally gets uh, insight into the meaning of the dream. And we pick it up in verse 24 when he makes the announcement uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. Well, he starts by basically saying, I wish this dream applied to your enemies and it's meeting to your adversaries. But then he goes on to describe and he says, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the most high is issued against my Lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed and it may be then your prosperity will continue. So there's two characters. One, Nebuchadnezzar, gets this wild dream and is confronted by God with his own pride. And Daniel, the other character, who has to bring the bad news to the king about his soul. Throughout scripture, pride is this very destructive thing. It doesn't acknowledge heaven. It doesn't repent over wrong. It doesn't care for those who are marginalized. And the, and the thing that you see over and over and over again in the Bible is that God opposes the proud. Now, when I hear that, I don't know about you, but when I hear it, it's like, well, why? Is he insecure? Like, is he walking around with his chest puffed out, just looking for somebody to, that looks at him wrong just to make sure we all know he's God? Is there some kind of insecurity in him where he has to keep defending ourselves, himself? But the truth is that I don't think that's his motive. The motive is, is that pride essentially uh, is building your life upon a core lie. And that lie is that you are God. Now, all of us, because we've been created in God's image, the Imago Dei, we, we have God-like qualities. We can create, we can rule, we, can, um, we have power. 
these sorts of things that we were given uh, in the creation narrative. And we either create and rule with a humility that is sort of an act of worship. It's sharing in God's purposes and plans, or we create and we rule whatever size or influence our little world is or our little kingdoms are with no thought of God. And we end up using people and destroying God's purposes. And the truth is, all of us see the crisis that human pride creates every day from the Syrian refugee crisis to political mudslinging. I mean, you don't really see that very often. To national military posturing, to just the private conversation about how much better you are than that other person. And it is the seed of pride that is in all of us that comes to full bore in Nebuchadnezzar's life. We always look at it and think, well, I mean, if I was the king of Babylon, I wouldn't be prideful. Or if I was Kanye, I wouldn't grab the microphone and embarrass anybody at the, right? Like, but, but the truth is, yes, you would. Like, most of us totally would. We just haven't been given that kind of influence. I mean, for me, every time I get in the car, I think I'm God. And I know for a fact no other drivers are because they drive horribly, but me, I drive like perfectly, but I'm always frustrated that I can't fully express my God-likeness in getting there on time. Then I get the Waze app, and I don't want you to get it because it helps me win. Uh, I get there first, I beat the traffic, it's the most amazing thing in the world. But it all comes from the sense of like, Deep down, I want to be God, and so do you. Like, we struggle with the issue of pride. And pride takes this God-given gift that we are capable of creating something. We're capable of making and producing and ruling and organizing and administrating, and it it perverts it into this man-made thing for our personal Glory, our institutional glory, our organizational glory, to where the end has nothing to do with God. It's all about us. And God always knows that pride destroys people at every level because underneath it is a lie that says we are God. And the truth is we are not God. And he opposes our attempts to be like him. God knows when we become prideful. And just like with Nebuchadnezzar where he's sitting there and this happens in a dream, it shows up. Um, God has no problem understanding the fullness of our heart. It's all open to him. We, we tend to be able to mask our motives and mask our pride. We have conversations that go on in the back of our head, but we don't necessarily speak everything we think, which would be a nightmare if you think about it, right? But, but that pride that's rolling around sometimes slips out. The problem is God doesn't look at our sort of way we mask our pride. He knows where it is deep in our heart. And he can show up any way he wants to confront us in our pride. And so this message that we, we discover in Daniel chapter four is in act one, 
basically he's saying that God opposes the proud. And the way he knows it is he's saying God opposed me. And it could be today for you and for me that God is opposing us right now in our pride. Those seeds in our heart that have grown and begin to flourish and have bent our vision onto ourselves. Well, as act one moves, there is this time span between the first act and the second act of a whole year of 12 months. And that's when the humbling occurs or the dream is fulfilled. Read with me in verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what, the, this is, what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately he gets a bad case of werewolf disease or something and ends up in the back 40 uh, for about seven years. So I hope you don't get that. Um, the thing that you see is that pride, pride forgets. It forgets our own createdness and our own fragileness. Like if we understand that we are created and that we're fragile, then what happens is we tend to respond to our gifts and our ability to make and create and produce things. We, be, we respond with gratefulness. Because we know that every one of us is susceptible to a fragile created body that could break down or a mind that could go bad. Pride forgets that, even when it's warned. And there's so much in our culture, in our society, that sort of wants us to keep believing the lie that nothing can stop us. But God can. He says, you hear this pride forgetting that a year ago what happened when Daniel told him what was going to go down. He says, this is my kingdom. I built it with my power and my glory. The truth is that the gifts that Nebuchadnezzar had, the gifts that you and I have been given, the good things that we accomplish are only there because we've been graced by God with them. Now some of you will push back and say, that's not true, I, I worked hard in school, I get a job, I work hard, I, like, I do the best. But the truth is, if you just back that up between your effort and your competencies, between how much energy you put into it and, and what kind of already uh, giftedness was there for the task, you see that who gave you that gift? Who gave you a brain that works that way? Who gave you the competency to make that thing happen? Look, we can all take art classes 
and I could take hundreds of art classes, I'm never going to be a, a Rembrandt. Like, I'm always not going to be a very good artist. And, and why is that? Because something went on before uh, in him and his mind and the way everything was put together for a great artist that can make great art. And the rest of us take classes and hopefully make a copy that isn't horrible, right? When I was in eighth grade, we had to take art, and I'm colorblind, which, uh, and, and we had to do watercolors, and they just handed me the little watercolor paints, and they weren't labeled, which for most people is not an issue. But for me, I'm like, uh, I only see like three colors, and it's sort of yellow, blue, two blues, three browns, and a yellow. And we were supposed to make eight shades of green grass. And I didn't even see one green. So I just kept mixing. Everyone else was mixing them together and making different. And I just kept mixing them. And I had a, a brown sky. And I don't know what. Because after a while, they all just turned the same color. And uh, I got a D plus. I guess for effort. I don't know. But... <laughs> But it wouldn't really matter. Like everybody else was bragging about their grade. I was like, okay, but you're not colorblind. So you're not like a genius or something. You just, you see the colors. <laughs> I don't. But what made that happen for them? What, who gave you that competency? Who gave you that skill? Who gave you that ability? And if we see them as gifts, then we have an opportunity to humbly steward those and participate in God's world. But for Nebuchadnezzar, they were all about him. It was all about him. It was made by him, for his power, for him to brag about. And for many of us, that's how we see our stuff, our energy, our time, the things that we make and produce. But God sees, right? God is paying attention He's watching for a year, he watches Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe that year was an opportunity for him to do what Daniel had, re, had advised him, which was to repent of his sin and his wickedness and to show kindness to the oppressed. He said, maybe there's still time to not have this come to pass. God is paying attention and he's acting in accordance with his own timeline. I think for many of us, we come to church, we hear messages, we hear warnings, but we're sort of like, well, God, I know all that. We've heard all that, but I don't know if he's really active. I don't know if he's really paying attention. But a year later, as he sits there bragging about his kingdom, he didn't know when God was going to do it. And Nebuchadnezzar couldn't stop God from doing it. And God humbled him at the very point of his greatest strength, which was his mind. I mean, he could strategize and he could cast vision. He could rally the troops. Like, he made an incredible kingdom. It wasn't just some small little thing. It was an incredible thing for the day. And it was a high point in the Middle East. And yet, here he was, weakened, out back, running around like an animal, because God can humble anybody anytime he wants to. And that's true for us, it's true for the church, and it's true for the culture. God can humble anybody any way he wants to. 
Because this type of pride is kind of insidious. Like we all struggle with it at some point. The church has been radically crippled in her mission to love Jesus and preach his power and to bring freedom to the heart of people because of her pride. We can run away from the culture and create this us against them mentality, keep fighting for power, keep fighting for privilege, seek it. We want our glory to be there so that the church can show that we're so much better than other people rather than humbly wanting other people to experience the glory of Jesus. And God can humble the church anytime, any way he wants. He may be doing that right now, at our time, in our space, in this culture. So when we think to ourselves that we can sort of arrogantly, uh, like God's not active and he's not doing anything and we just need to band together and force our agenda, the truth is there's a pride underneath that that says we're better than and God essentially isn't acting. So we will take his place and we will do that. For Daniel, he had to walk this tightrope of going, for whatever reason, this king is in place right now and I have a job to bear witness to the king that is above that king, to the rule that is above that rule. And the church has to pay attention. We have to be humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And that starts with each of us individually recognizing the pride in our own heart. We're even prideful against each other. Like this church is better than that church and I'm this kind of Christian, not that, because those are dumb Christians and I'm this good Christian. And you, know, and you sit there and you look at it and you're like, wow. It's everywhere. But this, the truth is God is active and able to humble all the powers and uh, people uh, in culture as well. So even if the church does lose its privilege or its position in society, when we say, what do we do? Well, the first thing is we don't have to go to war with culture because God is active and he can humble the, the powers that be uh, and the people who are against him anytime, any way he wants. And so we shouldn't pridefully assume that we can just assimilate into culture because wherever culture is in a given moment, that's where the power and the privilege is and that's where it is good to be. Sometimes faithfulness to God means that we will stand in a marginalized place. And are you humble enough to stand there, trusting that you stand there with the God who rules over all things? Or will you give that up and allow his word and his truth and his commands and his ways of being to just be kind of morphed over, mushed together, undermined so that you could be accepted and have privilege in this moment of culture? So there's these two kinds of tensions that we can run to. What God calls us to do is to lovingly and humbly and prayerfully engage in sharing Jesus and trust that we don't have to go over here and protect God's glory, but we also shouldn't be assimilated into culture 
thinking that God is sharing his glory with our amazing American cultural moment. And what gives us the humility to stand in this place is the truth that God is sovereign and he can humble anybody anytime he wants. And we should hear that first for the church and then for the culture. First for ourselves and then for other people. And so as Acts 2 comes to a close, Nebuchadnezzar has lost his mind and his kingdom. Everything that he prided himself on has been taken away. And now he's out there unknown and insane. And then we come to the third act, where God, through this humbling, produced a transformed life. Look at verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So act three opens with this scene where you have this man who has lost his mind and it says at the end of that time, I Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes towards heaven. What saved him from what he was suffering and what ultimately changed the pride in his heart is that he finally looked up to God and worshiped him. Pride doesn't do that. Pride keeps our eyes on ourself. It sees other people and God through the lens of our agenda for our glory. But at this point, he begins to take his eyes off himself and acknowledge that God is God alone. That his gifts and his place in the world have been given to him by God And so what he's concerned about now isn't his personal glory, he says, but the glory of my kingdom. There's an idea in there that his kingdom now is participating as God ordained it to, that it would help other people, that it would result in human flourishing. And when we humble ourselves and lift our eyes to heaven, God is ready to receive that humble gaze. Because he's able to walk, humble all who walk in pride, and he's ready to receive those who humble themselves before him. Now what do we learn from this as it relates to living in exile? Well the first would be Daniel and his buddies had no idea when they got to Babylon 
that the king himself would become a worshiper of their God through their influence. I mean, it's ludicrous to even think that they were like, hey, don't be discouraged, fellas. We're on a mission trip uh, as they're being carried off, right? And it's important that you don't underestimate that the place that you've been put put or we've been put in this moment, that you have been put there by God. Those relationships, that workplace, that school. And that God may have you there so that you can bear humble witness to him for the sake of the people who are around you. Because what's happening and what this, this edict sort of teaches us is that God is active in the world. God's not passively up there going, man, I wish you guys would fix things. It looks like you've screwed it up. I'll hang up here until I decide to pull the rapture thing, right? But he's actually active and he's dealing with the world. He's not passively waiting. And you and I are called to trust that in that space as well as respect it. So deal with the pride in your own heart and trust that God is dealing with the pride in the world systems and you have been put there to bear witness to this God. Daniel got that. He got that he was participating as a witness, joining God and being faithful and available to speak and act at appropriate times. So think about the places that you have been put and those spaces that you are called to be of Christ follower in and don't underestimate the fact that God is actively at work there. The truth is that, that part of being in those spaces is that you can be kind of insecure. And I think most of us so want security from the culture that we don't fight back. Think about the year that went by for Daniel. Like he says, this is the dream, you will be cut down, da da da, da. You know, eight months later, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's getting on his royal, you know, personal jet or whatever going, hey, thanks for the dream interpretation, buddy. And he just looks like an idiot, like he didn't know what he was talking about. But God is actively at work on his timeline and sometimes we stand in those spaces and we do feel insecure. But we're still called to faithfully and humbly speak. Then, what's incredible about it is that Nebuchadnezzar becomes the biggest witness to the world. As he writes this, he writes this as the most powerful king in the world. And so if you go to verse one of chapter four, it says, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. Now, very few people get to write that letter and have anybody read it. So here's this king that many of the people of God had written off as being way too far for God, way too far from him, way too prideful, way too all these things. And now he is the biggest witness of God to the world. Now that, that means to you and I that no one is beyond the power of God to transform them. So as you stand in that space, you don't get, we don't get to write anyone off. We just bear witness to God and let God do his work. You know, sometimes if you have religious pride, this sort of thing really bugs you. Religious prideful people hate it when really 
kind of irreligious people come to faith and then they're better Christians than they are, right? So they go from like witnessing to them to then like gossiping about their bad doctrine behind their back or something. And here's Nebuchadnezzar, just like he's the best missionary. He's uh, extremely passionate and, and the religious people have to deal with him. And God loves to do that, to religion, to break down that religious pride. And God is actively dealing with the church in this moment. The first response from anybody for Israel, for the scattered church, for a church that's under persecution is humility. Is that we would look at this moment and the first thing we do is repent of our own sin. Do what is right. That we care for the poor because we understand that God is active in the world, that he's paying attention. And we want our hearts to be right before him. And so the reason that we don't have to be insecure in this cultural moment is because God is ruling. God is reigning. God is the one who's always on mission and we're just joining him. And that he has the power to protect us and the power to humble us. And he has the power to save those who stand against us. And so be humble and be courageous because God can turn any heart into a worshiping heart. We should never give up hope. God is able to humble all who walk in pride. As we come to this table today, I think of uh, this verse in 1 Peter, as, first, as Peter writes to the church that's now scattered, right? He's with Jesus and Jesus dies and resurrects and ascends, and now he's having to direct the believers. And they're having to navigate all kinds of cultural, different cultures. And his advice to them, what he tells them to do in First Peter, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Today we come to bread and to wine, to the sacred sacrament that the sovereign God gave us in his own humiliation. That the sovereign God would, would be the humbled one who would take on our flesh, who would die and have his body broken and his blood shed, that he would overcome the grave through his sovereign power and establish a kingdom that would never end. Jesus is the humble king of kings. And he calls you and I to humble ourselves before him today. So what is it that you need to humble yourself from? Where is that pride in you, whether it's a religious pride that says, oh, they're all so bad and I need to run or protect myself from the world? Or it's sort of a cultural pride that says, I am such a progressive Christian that I've rewritten all of God's commands to kind of just fit nicely with our cultural moment. What is that pride in you that he's calling you today to lift your gaze to heaven, which essentially is a way to repent and to admit that he is God and you are not. 
that you don't always understand his ways or his timing, but he is active in the world and he knows your heart. Come today in humility before our humbled king and give thanks for all he has given you and be bold and courageous as you witness for him in the place that you've been put. Let's pray. Father, today we come before you. I think uh, all of us see today, God, that you are God who opposes pride, that its destructive power wreaks havoc in our own hearts, in our relationships, and in our world. And that you see that pride inside of us and that you can humble us anytime, any way, anyone that you want to, that you're able to humble us. And so today, God, I ask that you would do business with our own hearts, that we would lift our eyes to heaven today and ask in our own declaration, declaring that you're God and we're not, to repent of our own arrogance and pride and sinfulness and to with humility God give thanks to you for all you have done for us help us to trust God that you are actively engaged in the world and that you've placed us in it to bear witness for you and help us to hope because God the truth is you can turn any heart into a worshiping heart Would you do that today with our own hearts, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.